You're listening to an Afternoon Reads podcast featuring a selection of writers from the 2012 World's Literature Festival. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to the last in our series of Afternoon Reads. Sorry for the uh, delay in starting. We've got a group of hungry writers and we didn't want to deny them their lunch before starting. Um, for those of you that have joined us throughout the week, thanks very much for spending so much time with us. Um, I'd like to introduce our guest host for this afternoon, who is Kate Griffin. Um, she is uh, an international literature consultant and uh, uh, international programme director at uh, British Centre for Literary Translation. She's worked with London Review of Books, Arts Capital England, Arvel Foundation, Penn International, and was also a judge uh, for many years of um, the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize. Um, she is a great friend and colleague of Writer Centre Norwich, and so I'm delighted to invite her to host this afternoon's reading, alongside um, her splendid display of writers <laughs> that we have for you this afternoon. Um, so I'd like to welcome Kate now. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Um, I'm delighted to be uh, welcoming you to this afternoon reading on the final day of Worlds the international literary gathering that's been organised by the amazing team at Writer Centre Norwich. Um, this afternoon we're exploring the theme of strange lands. In the company of five writers from Australia, Iceland, South Africa, the UK and the US, we'll examine themes of loss, otherness and home. Our journey will take us through the lands of myth, philosophy and questioning. We'll see these strange lands from different perspectives, as outsiders, as people in exile, and also as writers immersed in their location. The strange lands in question are not just geographical. We will also explore how we navigate home and family life. All in all, it promises to be a fascinating afternoon. Our five readers this afternoon will be Catherine Cole, CJ Driver, Samantha Harvey, Robin Hemley, and Sean. I'll introduce each of them in turn and let them talk a little bit about how the work that they're reading relates to Arthur. Um, first up, we have Catherine Cole, who's a regular visitor to Norwich and to Worlds. Uh, Catherine Cole has published three novels, Dry Dock, Skin Deep, and The Grave at Thule, which explores French colonialism and family life in Hanoi. Her non-fiction books are Private Dicks and Feisty Chicks, an interrogation of crime fiction, and The Poet Who Forgot, a memoir about her youthful friendship with the poet Ad Hope. She's edited The Perfume River, an anthology of writing from Vietnam, and Fashion in Fiction on clothing in text and film. In Vietnam, she edited General Giap's memoirs on Dien Bien Phu. The anthology, Room 101, which examines Orwell through the photographs of Bronner Koska, will be published in late 2012. And her work in progress includes the campus novel, The Cyclist. And her academic work includes collections of essays on D.H. Lawrence in Australia and a new look at Milan Kundera. She's reading today from a series of stories which examine the need for home. The Rabbit. Turns the pages of the book, his fingers carefully tracing the words as he reads. It is a sunny day, and Jim and Annie are going to a farm. 
He looks carefully at Jim in his neat grey shirt. Annie is wearing a red and white dress. She has golden hair like her brother and very blue eyes. They smile on each page, waking in beds covered with striped blankets, going to school in an orange bus, eating pink ice creams with their friends. The farm has a cow and a field with an apple tree. Some chickens peck at the ground. Jim will milk the cow and Annie will collect the eggs, the boy reads. There is one brown egg and six are white. The teacher gives the class a different book each week, old books, their covers written on already by other children. The boy finds something companionable in the previous reader's words and little sketches, as though they are pointing out things that he might miss. In one book, Jim and Annie have been to the zoo, in others to the circus and to a supermarket to buy food. They have visited a friend in hospital and Jim has decided he'll become a doctor when he grows up. They have gone on holidays to a faraway mountain and learned how to ski on its snowy slopes. The boy likes best the books with animals in them. The cow gazes at him over a white painted fence. The chickens peck at the grass. A yellow bird sits high in the branches of the apple tree, its head thrown back, musical notes rising from its open mouth. When Jim goes with the farmer to milk the cow, a little dog goes with them. Jim and Annie have many opportunities to play with animals. The boy hopes for such times one day. The boy's mother sits in the corner and listens to him read. Sometimes she repeats the words. Jim and Annie. Let's buy some oranges today, Jim. Watch me ski, Annie. Sometimes the boy prefers to read silently. It helps him to store the words in his head, to imagine the world of Jim and Annie better, the lives that go on after the story has ended, when the hens are back on their perches and the cow is milked. He has even made up his own Jim and Annie stories, placing them in parks and schoolrooms and markets such as the one in his old village. He can't imagine them fitting in his village. He would advise them not to smile so much or laugh or shout loudly as they did when they slid down the snowy slopes. Read, read, his mother says. So he makes some more words for her. Look, it's raining, Jim. And she says them back to him. The boy looks at the dog, the cow, the chickens, Here's the sounds they make, though he doesn't make these sounds out loud. He would like to hear the dog bark. It would make a high sound because it is just a little dog. The chickens would make a deep clucking, which would rise in pitch if they became agitated or afraid. In the past, he has been guilty of chasing chickens, of enjoying the acceleration of their clucking as he ran after them. He has never chased a cow or any big animal not a donkey or a goat, though he has been tempted to do so. To run after any animal now seems improbable. Even if he were Jim or Annie, he couldn't do that. When he reaches the end of the story, the boy goes back to the start. It is easier to read it the second time around, to pronounce the words more confidently once he knows how the story ends. 
It is Saturday, and Jim and Annie are going to their uncle's farm. What he would like to see in this story is a little furry rabbit. There has not been one in any story so far, though Jim and Annie have seen horses and pigs and tigers and elephants. They have stretched their heads backwards to take in the height of a giraffe and laughed at the monkeys in a circus tent. Their uncle's farm would be the ideal place for a rabbit. There is plenty of grass under the apple trees. The rabbit might even eat one of the fallen apples, though the boy is not sure if this should be part of a rabbit's diet. He will have a rabbit one day, a white rabbit with long white ears through which you can see the pink flush of the skin underneath, a nose as pink as Annie and Jim's cheeks, and eyes as pink and glistening as the ice cream they ate. Read, his mother says, and he pretends not to hear. His rabbit will live in a neat box into which he will place clean straw each day. When the weather is good, he will let his rabbit out to hop around on the grass. His fingers long for the touch of soft fur, thick and sweet-scented, the warm, pulsing body of the animal underneath. In his old country, he has stroked a rabbit, gazed into eyes fringed with long lashes, touched his own nose to the rabbit's twitching one. If he can afford it one day, he will buy a boy and a girl rabbit, and they will make many children, and then, like Jim and Annie, they will have a farm. Now his mother is making the sound she often makes, so low it is sometimes hard to hear it. He stares down at the book, at the primary brightness of it, not wanting to turn his head. It is the sound of a very low note from an ancient musical instrument or the deep growl of a wild dog. He has heard it so many times now, he wonders if this is what links human beings to animals, some wild thing inside each person that attempts to escape through their mouth. In this place, he has heard it rise from the throats of the women, but also from some of the men. They sit silently, sometimes they rock, and when they try to speak, there comes instead this deep, terrible note. He waits until it has passed, but then it comes again, so he opens his book and reads more loudly. What a lovely day to go to the farm, Annie. I hope the chickens have laid some eggs, Jim. It has passed. He hears at last the rustle of his mother rising. She touches her hand to his back, says, come. He puts the book neatly on the pile by his bed and follows her through the centre and outside into the sun. Some women are sitting under an awning and they call to his mother softly. Go, she says, towards the swings that have been set up for the smallest children. Play. He looks across at the children, they're swinging slowly backwards and forwards in the heat. Can she not see that he is too old for their games? The centre's children don't go high like Jim and Annie when they rode on the swings at the circus, their feet pointing upwards so you could see the soles of their shoes. He would rather go back inside and look at his books, but he wants to please his mother. He does not want her to growl again like an animal. When she's in the sun with the other women, the sound, for the moment at least, goes away. He walks instead to the centre's perimeter and looks towards the outer fence with the barbed wire on top. 
From here, he often listens to the sounds of passing cars and the voices of people waiting to come in to visit. There is nowhere secret here in which to hide a rabbit, even if he could ask a visitor to sneak one in for him. And there is so little grass, there is nothing for a rabbit to eat. He waits for his mother until the dinner bell. They eat, then watch television. They pray. He reads his stories. Once he used to impress his teacher with each newly learned word and the way in which he understood Jim and Annie and the bright and free lives they led. Once he used to tell his teacher about the life he would lead when he was allowed to go with his mother to a new home, a farm perhaps, with a cow and chickens and a dog and lots of rabbits, though the teacher told him that rabbits on farms were not popular in Australia. Or perhaps he and his mother could just live in a square house with a garden like those he saw from the bus when they brought them here. But it has been so long he doesn't bother the teacher with his dreams anymore. Annie and Jim will remain the same age in the blue books with other children's messages scrawled across them. But he is getting older and his dreams like his memories of the village and its animals, the chickens and hard-working donkeys, the goats and rabbits are beginning to fade. Jim and Annie will live their bright and simple lives, milking a cow, collecting hen's eggs, stroking the pliant fur of a little dog who understands through the touch what a burden it is to be a human sometimes. The lights are out and he calls goodnight to his mother. Her reply is soft. May God rest with you, my son. He prays for her to sleep well too, free from nightmares, free from what they have lost, for the dead and for the living. He prays for a rabbit. Just as he is slipping towards sleep, he hears again that low, desperate animal growl. Does it come from his mother? The whole building seems to sigh it. And then from his own throat, he hears a more terrible sound, the cry of the rabbit as the market trader took it from its box for a customer, and with one deft, sharp crack, broke its neck. Thanks. Thank you, Patrick. Um, next, I'd like to welcome John T. Driver to the stage. Uh, John T. has had first-hand experience of the themes we're exploring this afternoon. Born and educated in Cape Town, he was elected president of the National Union of South African Students in the 1960s. However, after being locked up by the police in solitary confinement, ostensibly on suspicion of his involvement in the African resistance movement, Jonty left for England. While he was at Oxford, the South African authorities refused to renew his passport, and he became stateless for several, several years, eventually becoming a British citizen. For more than 20 years, he was prohibited from returning to South Africa, though happily he's now able to visit often. CJ Driver has published six collections of poems, five novels, and a biography. His first two novels and the biography were immediately banned in South Africa, but reissued in 2000. His latest publication is The Selected Poems, 1960 to 2004, published under the title So Far. Some of the poems we'll hear this afternoon will come from his next pamphlet to be published by the Happenstance Press under the, the title Citizen of Elsewhere. Thank you.
first poem I'm going to read had its uh, particular genesis in a reading I did for UEA, one of the readings that they organized at the Savon Club. Um, it, it was a very pleasant evening. I enjoyed my reading. The questions afterwards were very warm and friendly until a very old friend of mine who was a professor of sociology, uh, rather a fierce and impatient woman, uh, said to me, really, John, you've lived in this country now more than half your life. Isn't it time you accepted the fact that you're English? You've got English children and English wife. You even sound quite English. Uh, and I said, I can't answer that question now. But uh, I, I went away and later uh, wrote this particular poem. I need to explain that the poem includes a couple of quotations from a poem by W.E. Henley uh, called England, My England. Um, and the epigraph is from a novelist called Nigel Borshin, Darkness Falls from the Air. Uh, and in that, a character says, I don't think you belong to any country in particular when you are old. Before the dawn, a dream of what I lost by leaving when I did. And then the sky, blood streaked enough for home, and I remembered what you asked. But haven't you already made your choice? You've lived in England more than half your life. You have a house, career, a wife, even an English voice. Old friend, you know quite well how much I've changed, but still I need those deep horizons where, with no impediment but air, the far-flung land is ranged. You say I'm almost English now, should keep myself concealed? A fractured part of me, my heart perhaps, will always be in Africa. When I'm asleep, or when the early breezes shift the haze of mornings into Sussex summer skies, the promises of heat revive those distant, dusty days. So if we immigrants from overseas have found in England rich security, since here one may be almost free, such teeming destinies once held in England's boundless masterwork come now to sweep the streets, or teach, or nurse. Must we be told that we should curse our past as wholly dark? Accumulated anguish for a name, and nothing good to find but grief in loads piled up like cairns on mountain roads to fool an exile home. And yet, both here and there, I'm tainted by the past. An Englishman, come lately back again, who thought that he might skip the pain, colonial to the last. So here I stay, half hoping still to go. The claim of birth would be of little use if once again I made a choice. The years are not so slow. The morning spreads its wings, the ash tree leaves are making music out of light and shade. 
the early colours smudge and fade, a roosting ringdove grieves. I am in England now, old hypocrite who smiles and bows and nods and does his best to seem content. I'm loyal, at least. Or is this still deceit? I was asked to contribute a, a poem to a volume um, called Branch Lines uh, about the influence of um, uh, Edward Thomas on contemporary English poetry and uh, wrote a poem called Telling the Truth, which is partly about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, in South Africa. Uh, the, the town I talk about is my hometown, I suppose, Gramstown. Um, I walk the streets of what I once thought of as home. It isn't now. Old age retreats. What happened since fell out of time. I don't know how. The past colludes to make one say that grace persists. It never dies. As stone obtrudes through graded clay, the real insists, it always has. What ends our song is never known. The rifle shot right through the throat, the pulse gone wrong, the cancer grown. What is, what's not, have found us out. And then the third poem um, is called Simple Song. It is written in memory of an Afrikaans poet called Ingrid Jonker, uh, who uh, was the daughter of an Afrikaans, the estranged daughter of an Afrikaans nationalist cabinet minister uh, who uh, was also going through a very complicated set of love affairs. And finally, Ingrid uh, got into the sea uh, uh, off uh, uh, Clifton uh, in Cape Town and swam out to sea and drowned herself. Um, Star-crossed, says the night. Word-cursed, says the day. Piecemeal, patchwork, Matchwood, password. Faithless, says the boy. Heartless, says the girl. Lovelorn, hopeless, fearsome, far-flung. Heart sore, says the head. Headstrong, says the heart. Head start, heartache, heartbreak, headlong. Make weight, says the wind. Feckless, says the sun. Windswept, woeful, far gone, farewell. Is that my ten minutes? Can I? Um, uh, 
this is a, a poem in, in, in Terza Rima about horse racing. Uh, I wrote it for uh, a very rich friend of mine who owns racehorses. Um, Terza Rima works very well uh, with uh, uh, racehorsing. <laughs> racing horses. Um, the autumn sun comes <coughs> slanting through the hedge as if a sideways slouch might hide in tent. Oh, we're bound for darkness, tilting on the edge. And somehow, knowing what it was one meant to do or be, this seems a perfect time to make a change. The trouble is one can't, unless one swigs a double slug of shame. One's made so many promises and now must stick to them, or else must scratch one's name. It's not as if the race went on, round and round, with marshals standing there disconsolate. It's not the sort of thing one had in mind when one sat grinning at the starting gate. We're heading for the fence and then the sprint. Not very far. So, time to hesitate. Or else to veer across the rails, hell-bent on self-destruction. Or to canter off along a grassy ride, whistling, insouciant. Of course one gives a damn, but best to laugh and tell the tales. He hitched a lift to Greece. He joined the Foreign Legion. He cured his cough in Tenerife. They set up shop in Nice. He put his fiddle on his back and strolled to Spain. He joined the mounted police. The trouble is, to find oneself grown old and not to know. It's time to act your age, old otter ego says. Where you have failed, accept your fate. Relax, no point in rage. Be cool, retreat. Oh, keeper of the debt, oh, judge of all the world, oh, holy sage, whose side did you take? The kindly ones forget their rules and smile. Things have gone awry. There are many fallers. And the favourite dislodged his mount. Distrain, distraught, astray, the riderless are streaming for the fence. Do we declare sufficient for the day or risk our winnings on a second chance? Our third reader this afternoon is Samantha Harvey. Born in Kent, here in England, Samantha Harvey has completed postgraduate courses in philosophy and in creative writing. Her first novel, The Wilderness, was shortlisted for the Orange Prize for Fiction in 2009, longlisted for the 2009 Man Booker Prize, shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award, and won the 2009 AMI Literature Award and the Betty Trask Prize. She was recently named by The Culture Show as one of the 12 best new British novelists. This afternoon, Samantha will read to us from her new novel, All is Song, which was published earlier this year.
strange lands and the character of of this novel or this song is a man called William who I guess um, for whom the whole world is a strange land he's a sort of Socratic character in the sense that I did loosely model him on Socrates um, and as such he's someone who believes that it's a human being's responsibility to question things and try to arrive, if possible, at an, uh, an understanding of the essential nature of something. And that's an inherently destructive process because to get to try to get towards the truth, you have to first away, first clear away everything that you thought you knew and all your false beliefs and your hunches and your assumptions. And that can often not leave you with the truth at all, but with less than you started with. Um, and as such, William is a, a character who sits very easily in the world. And the novel is narrated by his younger brother, Leonard, who loves William deeply, and also who finds him, as the do most people, to be a complete pain in the arse. And um, in this section, Leonard is uh, by Regent's Canal in London, and he's reflecting on his on William and also on their father, who was a vicar and who's recently died. Um, he's reflecting on the last few days of his father's life. Um, and being a vicar, and also in just by temperament, his father has a very opposite view of the world to William. Felt that build to the building one's worldview is a constructive process, not a destructive one. So he and William had a very fractious relationships. So this is about that pull between some sort of destructive and constructive way of seeing things. Their family had been a good and loving lot, or they had. They'd been wise observers of the world and careful partakers. And before he died, their father had got himself paternally anxious about the current state of things, as if he didn't like to leave a world he thought was in trouble and might need him. Here was a brand new century, so untouched an offering of itself. Yet what was man doing with it? There were wars darkly flourishing all over the place. And it wasn't that the ever Pacific old man condoned an open war. He condemned them all. But those new ones fought far away and for obscure private gains were insidious and alarming. Nobody told the truth. Maybe they never had. But now that there were so many more people than there were before, by pure statistics, there were so many more lies. And lies had a critical mass at which they became so complex, they started to look like the truth, even to the liars themselves. And so there was little distinguishing between fact and falsity, even if one maintained the will to do so. When Leonard comforted his father by taking him out to see the new dahlia stems <coughs> and the cresting vista that fell, and bounty from the bottom of the garden. The old man's breath would even out, and he'd concede that everything did seem all right after all. The cows and sheep were grazing right enough, and the streams ran with unerring ease and vigor, and the west side of Black Hope Scar caught the glancing gold of the sunset just as always. Yes, everything seemed robust and unending, then they'd go back indoors, and whatever they did with the rest of the day, it would culminate in the lighting of the fire, even in summer, and some cooked meat for dinner, with a supermarket-bought hot sponge dessert, 
and those intimate things would do for a while by way of comfort. But one time, his breath didn't even, and when Leonard took him back inside from the garden, he picked up the three-dimensional puzzle of Williams and worried away at it for the afternoon. When Leonard asked what was wrong, he shuffled a copy of Scientific American a few inches across the floor with his foot towards Leonard and started saying how he really didn't much like this thing with Schrodinger's cat and his being dead and alive at once, nor the idea of waves being particles and particles being waves, and multiverses bothered him more than ignorant atheists, though he didn't at all mind atheists who'd taken time to think things through. He was all for science and progress, but what was this wretched world that this wretched cat lived and simultaneously didn't live in? We were being stripped of our certainties, and it was monstrous, for the world was there for touching and seeing and sensing, and then, ultimately, for knowing, for knowing and giving oneself to in love and grace, whether with God or not. This was, for him, an issue beyond religion. However one comes to know the world, one must find a world that is knowable, otherwise we might as well be amoebas inhabiting a petri dish. The more restless he became on the subject, the more avidly he threw himself into his home brewing sessions in defiance, Leonard supposed, of that despised cat and its profound underminings. He busied himself even where poor health made busyness awkward, and he would get preoccupied and gratified by the rules and methods of his brewing guide. By the last few weeks of his life, he had started to make some very competent ales bottles and bottles of which were lined up in the cellar. Watching the news became for him at once an obsession and an intolerable affliction, for he was shrewd and knowledgeable about current affairs and thought he saw the whole globe heading towards an impasse. The first year of the new century was, he'd said, a littered mix of earthquakes and meteorites, crashes and explosions, and ominous politics that would do nothing enlightened for the world. The death of some 200 Nigerian villagers was one of the last news items he heard. They'd been scavenging for gasoline from a leaking pipeline when it exploded. They scavenge because they're poor, he'd said. They die because they're poor. All our livelihoods depend on things that cost money. All our needs have been put just beyond our fingertips. It's a question of who can stretch the furthest. The rich can stretch the furthest. Poverty is rigid. Only money makes one elastic. Love used to. No, love still does. But society pays no heed to love any longer. Those villagers could not live on love. Nor were they, like that cat, both dead and alive at once. They were squarely dead, and definitely dead, and dead without quantum consolation. And the sooner we stopped trying to confuse one another with impossibilities and accepted the flat reality of things, the sooner we might start to rebuild this broken world. He'd gone uneasily back to his brewing with sallow but resolute face. A man needs certainties, he said, tapping his brewing guide. He needs determined outcomes that are within his reach. All this horror and muddle and hopeless stretching, a man needs somewhere to stop and rest. Leonard could see there was no point in taking him out into the garden that afternoon. So he just brought him tea and helped him decant his brew into the stoppered bottles and carry them to the cellar. 
It was the day following the tragic fate of those villagers that the old man refrained from the news and went out alone to check how the dahlias were budding, then came indoors finally to die. Up I go, he said, on one of his last breaths, the words diffusing in front of his lips like seeds knocked from a dandelion, so sweetly said, with a whispering, childish pout. Leonard understood now what his father had been craving, that resting point at which he could stop and say, well, at least I know this. When at sea in a storm, at least you know which way is north. Times were changing. Of course, they always changed. Still, one couldn't always feel that, not in the way he could feel it then. The fact that everything was built in the spirit of certainty only highlighted the fact that nowhere could certainty itself be found. Each man made up his mind based on another's guesses and held to it as though he'd minded himself from the pure well of truth. And so he must, he must, even if there were no pure well of truth, he must act as though there were. There must be a place, or many places, to stop and rest and say, this is what I know. Every belief must constitute a place of rest, else the journey ruins one. And it was impossible in all of those thoughts for Leonard to bury the picture of his brother standing somewhere along this arm of water, one solitary and slightly ghostly figure asking the world to admit its ignorance. Rest nowhere, entitle yourself to no surety. Nothing but the absolute truth counts for anything. A half-truth or a benign ignorance is as good as a lie. Why did his brother have to think and talk that way? The truth, as if there were just one truth, towards which all outcomes were pulled gravitationally. Do you think, William, you're the chosen one, bearing a light too bright for others to look at? As if there were even such a thing as this light and its absolute end. His demand sheared against the human need for peace and quiet, and if Leonard was only beginning to see the extent of that now, it wasn't because he was only just realising it, but because he was only just remembering what he already knew and had willfully forgotten through love and loneliness. This time for which he so pined, when he and his brother would lock in elegant and expansive debate about any issue that so presented itself, this time he so wanted back had never existed. When he considered it, all that had ever happened was what was happening now, those spiralling and self-limiting conversations they had in which his brother would force every one of his concerns into oblivion. Then it turned away from the view of the basin and began to go back the way he'd come. By the time he passed the boats along the green stretch by the bridge, their hatches were open and their inhabitants up or on deck, their radios playing, their dogs loose, and their days begun. Were these the people to whom William spoke when he came down to the canal? Had he broken into their spare and unassuming lives with conversation and questions? Had he told them what he felt? that it wasn't just idle to live by blind acceptance of the way things were, it was inhuman. Had he told them that, that in their accepting contentedness, they were inhuman. Thank you so much. <coughs> Next, I'd like to welcome Robin Henley who currently directs the non-fiction writing programme at the University of Iowa. 
Robin is the author of 10 books and the winner of many awards. His stories and essays have appeared in the New York Times, New York Magazine, Chicago Tribune, and many literary magazines and anthologies, and he's the editor of Defunct Magazine. His most recent book is A Field Guide for Immersion Writing, Memoir, Journalism, and Travel. Uh, last week, Robin was rather more immersed than he had planned for in the Philippines, thanks to the weather, so we're particularly grateful that he's able to join us this week. Um, this afternoon, uh, Robin will be reading from his third collection of short stories, Reply All, which was published this month. Thank you. Um, yeah, actually, this, this just came out, um, and I just want to read a story. I, I've been debating back and forth whether I should read an essay or a story, but I felt like reading something in a more humorous vein. So um, this is the title story, Reply All. I uh, just want to ask, how many of you have ever sent, um, by mistake, an email to more people than you intended? <laughs> how many of you have received an email that wasn't intended for you? Right, good. Um, so this is based slightly on such an experience. It wasn't as bad as it could have been, so of course, as a short story writer, I tried to make it as bad as it could possibly be. <laughs> and this is the result of my musings, and uh, I tried to be, make it as uncomfortable for the people as possible. So, reply all. And the strange lands that I guess I'm exploring here are the strange lands of the self, because it takes place in such a no more exotic locale than the suburbs of Chicago. So, to poetry association of the western suburbs listserv from Lisa Drago Hars. Subject, next meeting. Date, July 17th. Hi all, I wanted to confirm that our next meeting will be held in the Sir Francis Drake Room in, at the Bensonville Hampton Inn on August 3rd. Minutes from our last meeting and an agenda for the next meeting will follow shortly. Peace and poetry, Lisa Drago Hars, Secretary, <laughs> pause. To Poetry Association of the Western Suburbs Listserv, from Michael Stroud. Subject, re, next meeting. Date, July 17th. Dearest Lisa, first of all, I love your mole, and don't find it unsightly in the least. There's absolutely no reason for you to be ashamed of it, though it might be a good idea to have it checked out, but please don't remove it. Heaven forbid, my darling. As I recall, I gave you considerable pleasure when I sucked and licked it like a nipple. A nipple it is in size and shape, if not placement. That no one else knows your mole's position on your body other than your benighted husband, poor limp Richard, that sonnet of a bitch, as you call him, is more the pity. If Marvel had known such a mole, he undoubtedly would have added an extra stanza to his poem. But my coy mistress is not so terribly coy as all that, if I remember correctly, and how could I forget? You are not at all what I expected in bed, not that I had any expectations at all. When you started massaging my crotch with your foot underneath the table in the Sir Francis Drake room, I was at first shocked. For a moment, I thought perhaps the unseen massager was none other than our esteemed president, the redoubtable Darcy McPhee, makeup and wardrobe courtesy of Yoda. Is that terrible of me? 
I have nothing personal against her, really, except for her execrable taste in poetry, and the fact that you should be president, not she, and her breath, and that habit of pulling her nose when she speaks, and that absolutely horrific expression of hers, twee, as in, I find his poetry just so twee. What does twee mean? And why does she keep inflicting it upon us? So imagine my horror when I felt this foot in my crotch and I stared across the table at the two of you, she twitching like a slug that's had salt poured on it, and you, immobile, except for my, your Mont Blanc pen taking down the minutes. Ah, to think that the taking down of minutes could be such an erotic activity. But in your capable hands, it is. To think that mere hours later, it would be my Mont Blanc you'd grasp so firmly, <laughs> guiding me into the lyrical book of your body. But initially, I thought the worst, that it was Darcy, not you. My only consolation was the idea that at least I had her on a sexual harassment suit, her being my boss, after all, at Roosevelt. Another reason I thought it was her and not you was because I know you're married, and she isn't, and I knew that Richard is a member of our esteemed organization, too and he was in the room, seated beside you, no less. It was only that sly smile in, in your eyes that tipped me off. I, too, love the danger that illicit public sex brings, as long as it's kept under the table, so to speak. And yes, maybe someday we can make love on that very same table in the Sir Francis Drake room, my darling. But I must ask you, sweetheart, where did you learn that amazing trick? I have never seen people, I have seen people wiggle their ears before, but never that. What amazing talent, and such a pity that this is not something you bring out at parties or poetry readings to all the dumb masses. Would Darcy find that too twee? I think not. Thinking of you now makes me so hot I want to nibble you. I want to live in your panties. I want to write a series of odes to you equal in number to every lucky taste bud on my tongue, every nerve ending, no, not ending, but beginnings on my body that live in rapture of your every poor. No, not poor, but rich. I'm rich. I make metaphors of your muscles, of your thighs, of a fecund wetness bursting with your being and effulgence. I must swallow now. I must breathe. I must take leave, my darling, and go now to relieve myself of my private thoughts of you and you alone. With undying love and erotic daydreams, Mikey. P.S. Do you think you could get away for an evening next week? Could you be called away from Richard for an emergency meeting of the Public Relations Committee? To pause listserv from Darcy McPhee. <laughs> Subject, re-re, next meeting. <laughs> Date, July 17th. I am traveling now and will not be answering emails until I return on July 21st. Thanks, Darcy. <laughs> to pause listserv from Sam Fulgram, Jr., Subject, re-re-re, next meeting. Date, July 17th. Whoa, boy. Do you realize you just sent out your love note to the entire Poetry Association of the Western Suburbs listserv? Cheers, Sam. P.S., that mole? You've got my imagination running wild. As long as the entire organization knows about it now, would you mind divulging its location? I sleep better at night knowing it. To pause listserv from Betsy Midchester. Subject, re-re-re-re, next meeting. Date, July 17th. Hi, all. Well, 
That last message from Mikey Stroud certainly made my day. I thought at first the message was addressed to me. As I had no memory of placing my foot in Mike's crotch, I naturally assumed that I needed an adjustment to my medication so that I wouldn't forget such episodes in the future. Now I see it's simply Michael Downboy Stroud and our esteemed secretary of the galloping Mont Blanc who need the medication adjustments. Thanks in any case for a much-needed lift in an otherwise humdrum day. Betsy Midchester, Treasurer, pause. To pause, listserv, from Lisa Drago Harse. Subject, re, 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 next meeting. Date, July 17th. This is a nightmare. I'm not quite sure what to say except that life is unpredictable and often irreversible. While I do not wish to go into details or make excuses for the above email from Michael Stroud, I would like to clarify one thing. That was not my foot in your crotch, Michael. <laughs> but your belief that it was my foot in your crotch explains a few things concerning your subsequent behavior toward me that were up until this moment a mystery. Lisa Drago Harse. <laughs> to pause listserv from Michael Stroud. Subject re, 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 next meeting. Date July 17th. I'm to pause listserv. From Michael Stroud. Subject, re, 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 next meeting. Date, July 17th. I hit the send button by mistake before I was ready. <laughs> this isn't my day, to say the least. I'm sorry. I'd like to apologize to the entire PAUSE community, and also to Lisa's husband, Richard, and to Darcy, and to you, Lisa. I don't mean to make excuses for, my, for myself, but I would like to say that I have been under a tremendous amount of pressure of late. <laughs> at school, at home, and I am nothing if not vulnerable and flawed. All I can say is that in poetry I find some solace for the petty actions of others and the sometimes monstrous actions of which I am all too capable. As déclassé as truth and beauty are these days, it is in such expressions as those of Matthew Arnold, Keats, Byron, and Shelley that I look for my meager draft of the divine. And sometimes, I must admit, I seek in the affection of my fellow poetry lovers the divinity which I myself lack. I ask you all to blame me, not Lisa, for what has happened, but if not your foot, Lisa, then whose? <laughs> Michael Stroud. <laughs> to pause listserv from Greg Rodolsky. Subject, re, 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 respect. Day July 17th. Just a little bit, just a little bit. Socket to me, 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 respect. Just a little bit, just a little bit. To pause listserv, from Samantha M. Poulsen, RN. Subject, feckin' poets. Day July 17th. I do not care whose foot is in whose crotch, but I think it's insulting and idiotic that so-called educated people would use such phrases as the feckin' wetness bursting with your being and expulsions, and officers of the pause at that. To pause this serve, from Richard Drago Harse. Subject, re, feckin' poets. Date July 17th. I would like to tender my resignation from the cause of the western suburbs, as I will be tendering my resignation from several other areas of my life. I only belong to pause in any case because of my wife's interest in poetry. I wanted to share her interests, but clearly not all of them. <laughs> to pause, listserv. From Darcy McPhee. Subject, re-re-feckoned poets. Date July, 7th, date July 22nd. Well, 
It seems that our little organization has been busy in my absence. I have over 300 new messages in my email account, all, it seems, from my fellow poetry lovers. I haven't yet had a chance to read your exchanges, but I will soon. In the meantime, I wanted to convey some exciting news. This weekend, while attending a workshop at Wright State in Dayton, Ohio, I ran into the former poet laureate, Billy Collins, who has agreed to be our special guest at our annual poetry bash in Oak Park. He said he's heard quite a lot about our organization in recent days and that our board had achieved near legendary status in the poetry community. I knew this would make you as proud as it did to me. <laughs> to pause listserv from Darcy McPhee, subject Twee, date July 24th. So, this is how it is. Upon reading the 300 emails that collected in my inbox over the weekend, my mind is a riot of emotions. I have not slept for nearly 48 hours. Never before have I been so insulted. Yet I also know that I am at least in part to blame. Had I not stuck my foot in Michael Strauss' crotch, none of this would have happened. Twitching like a slug that's had salt poured on it, that hurts, Michael. I didn't realize you were so shallow, but in reading your collective emails, I see that at least half our membership has a decidedly sadistic bent. In any case, it was not your crotch I aimed for, Michael, but the crotch of our vice president, Amir Bashiri, with whom I have long been intimately acquainted, both of us having lost our spouses several years ago. If the seating arrangements in the Sir Francis Drake room were any less cramped, none of these misunderstandings would have occurred. Of course, I never would have tried to fondle you, Michael. In the first place, you are the most boring, tedious person I have met in my life. And believe me, as chair of the English department at Roosevelt, I have met my share of boring, tedious people. You recite poetry with all the grace of a highway sign that cautions one to beware of falling rocks. But enough. I know that it is my errant foot to blame. Amir and I have talked this over and have decided to withdraw from pause as well as from academia. Early retirement calls, Michael and Lisa, and I will give neither of you a thought as I walk along the beach hand in hand with Amir in the months and years to come, listening to the mermaids singing each to each. Yes, Michael, I find you and your crotch and your paramour the very essence of twee. Yeah. <laughs> to pause, listserv, from Betsy Midchester, treasurer. Subject, new elections. Date, July 30th. Please note that the agenda for our next meeting has changed. We will spend most of the meeting on, the new on new elections to be held for the positions of president, vice president, and secretary of our organization. Note, too, that we will no longer be meeting in the Sir Francis Drake Inn. Instead, we will be meeting in the cafeteria of the Enchanted Gardens Residence for Seniors in Glenelg. The change in venue was planned well in advance of recent events, so members should not do anything into this, though if any organization's members are skilled at reading between the lines, it should be ours. Please think about whom you would like to nominate for these important positions in our organization, and in the meantime, please remember to always be conscious and considerate of your audience. Peace and poetry, Betsy Midchester, treasurer and acting president. Pause. Thank you, Robert. <laughs> um, our final reader this afternoon is Sean an Icelandic writer well known in the UK for, his, for writing lyrics with the music artist Björk. He's published numerous books of poetry, prose and children's novels. Sean's first novel to be published in English, The Blue Fox, 
was longlisted for the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize in 2009, while the second novel, From the Mouth of the Whale, was shortlisted for this year's prize. This afternoon, Sean will read to us from his latest novel, The Whispering Muse, translated into English, as were the other two, by Victoria Cribb. Ég, Valdimar Haraldsson, var á 27. ári þegar ég hóf útgáfu lítils tímarits um helsta hugðarefni mitt, tengsl fiskneyslu og yfirburða hins norræna kynstofns. Það var á dönsku og kallaðist fisk og kultúr og komi út af því sauti á nárgangar á 20 ári. This is the beginning in Icelandic of the book. Uh, I've been speaking English here for a week, so <laughs> it was good to oil a little bit the Icelandic tongue. Uh, the book, uh, The Whispering Muse, is the story of an uh, old Icelander, Valdimar Haraldsson, who uh, is uh, invited on a maiden voyage of a freighter ship that is going to Norway to fetch paper pulp and uh, is then going to take it to the uh, destination in the Black Sea. Uh, Valdimar has some special ideas that he is very eager to discuss with his uh, shipmates, but uh, discovers to his uh, annoyance that another member of the crew, uh, the second mate, is much in, uh, in uh, is much in demand uh, for his storytelling at the captain's table. I will read the beginning of the, of, the, of, the, of the book, the one that I read for you, to introduce you to Valdemar, and then I will read the chapter where uh, Valdemar and Kenus, the second mate, where they meet for the first time. I, Valdemar Haraldsson, was in my 27th year when I embarked on the publication of a small journal devoted to my chief preoccupation, the link between fish consumption and the superiority of the Nordic race. It was written in Danish under the title Fisk og Kultur and came out in 17 volumes over the space of 20 years. During the First World War, publication was suspended for two years and the sixth and the seventh volume were only half complete, that is, only two issues each, as fate decreed that following the death of my first wife, I was confined to my bed for eight months, from late August 1910 until spring 1911. I won't go further into the reasons here, but will refer anyone who may be interested to my book, Memoirs of a Herring Inspector, published in Copenhagen in 1933. <laughs> The content of the journal was written primarily in foreign tongues, as I knew that the majority of my ideas would be too far, too newfangled for my countrymen, and indeed would pass way over their heads. For they hadn't even heard of, his, of, the, recent, of the recent scientific advances on which I based my theory, which was reiterated on the title page of every issue. It is our belief that the Nordic race, which has fished off the maritime coast for countless generations and thus enjoyed a staple diet of seafood, owes its physical and intellectual prowess 
above all to this type of nutrition. And that the Nordic race is for this reason superior in vigor and attainments to other races that have not enjoyed such ease of access to the riches of the ocean. So the old man is invited on a journey of, uh, on to the to, to journey on the ship uh, by the father of one of the former subscribers to his magazine. And uh, he's really looking forward to to the journey, not only because he he will be uh, he, he has access to audience to his ideas, but he believes that he will be eating fish for the whole journey. <laughs> he doesn't know that uh, sailors and seamen uh, despise fish while on the seas <laughs> and prefer meat to, to fish. So here the meat. And uh, so we, the theme is strange lands. So here we meet uh, Kerus, the second mate, and he tells the story of how he and his fellow sailors came to us, came to a strange land. Sailors who have been at sea for many years have a bottomless supply of tales about events they have either experienced firsthand or heard of from others of their ilk. In particular, it turned out that Kenus, second mate of the MS Elizabeth, Elizabeth Jung Olsen, was not shy about sharing with us various incidents that had befallen him in his day. He did so for the entertainment of his messmates, though they regarded it as an education too, since he had traveled further and seen more than any of them. From the anticipation that gripped my traveling companions, I gathered that the second mate must be an outstanding storyteller, and I realized that they had been waiting for this moment throughout the meal. Before embarking on his tales, the mate had the habit of drawing a rotten chip of wood from his pocket and holding it to his right ear like a telephone receiver. He would listen to the chip for a minute or two, closing his eyes as if asleep, while under his eyelids his pupils quivered to and fro. As this was the first time I had heard Kenus talk, I smiled foolishly at his absurd performance. I could only assume that it was the prelude to some vulgar piece of clowning and mimicry, and I looked around, expecting to see the same reaction from my table companions, even to see the, wo the woman tittering. But they were sitting quite still in their seats, waiting for the story to begin. Even the purse's lady friend watched enthralled as the man listened to the splinter of wood. My smile swiftly faded, and in my confusion, I darted a glance at Captain Alfredson, who did me the courtesy of overlooking my faux pas. Abruptly leaning forward on his elbows, he said in a quiet, firm voice, it's where he gets the story from. At these words, the second mate put down the piece of driftwood and began his tale. Many things can befall a sailor in his life. The perils await him not only at sea, but also in far-off ports. I wish to tell you about a train of events that led me into a piece of foolishness which resulted in such misfortune that I came within an inch of losing my life. I was a deckhand on a ship called the Argo. 
We were crossing the Aegean, having set sails from the city of Yorkus in Magnesia, with a long voyage ahead. The ship was newly built and fitted out with the finest rigging. But contrary winds and an unusually heavy swell had caused us to drift somewhat of our course at the very outset of our adventure. When we made landfall on the island of Lemnos, it was with the intention of, in, intention of taking on water and provisions. There was certainly no other plan. And it should by rights have detained us no more than a couple of days. But in the event, we were to spend nearly ten, 10 months on the island. Admittedly, we thought it strange that there were no ships lying in the harbor and that we hadn't encountered any craft in the approaches to the port. But as we were eager to reach land, it was not enough to rouse our suspicions and make us cautious. Nor were we troubled by the fact that the docks were empty of people. The man exchanged glances and said that the citizens must be in the city celebrating some festival. And wasn't it a happy coincidence that we should turn up at such time? We put out a boat and two of the crew piloted the ship to the harbour site. There we reefed the mainsail, moored the ship and stepped ashore. The first reaction of a man who has come ashore from the sea is to wonder that the earth should be so firm beneath his feet. This lasts for an instant, before being succeeded by another sensation that feels as if it will never end. Thirst. In an instant, all the salt that one has inhaled from the sea air is released from one's lungs to crystallize on the tongue, coating it like a glittering iron glow. And only one thing can quench that fire, wine. We looked as one man at the captain, who was standing by the gangway with the helmsman, and our eyes flashed with the eagerness of athletes at the starting line. A whole lifetime passed in this way, ending when the captain folded his arms across his chest and slowly shook his head. We emitted a pained sigh. The happy hopefulness fell from our faces, our shoulders drooped. The helmsman looked from this wretched rubble to his captain, who now gave a sly smile. The helmsman laughed aloud, and the captain shouted at us, his white teeth flashing in the burning midday sun. By holy Dionysus, man, go forth and be merry. And we answered in chorus, Long live the son of Aeson, long live Captain Jason. It should be mentioned here that this crew consisted of no weaklings, but of the greatest heroes known to man. Each and every one of us would have steered an entire fleet to victory. Each and every one of us had the courage to meet whatever foes may be, whether of human or monstrous kind. But before thirst, even the greatest champions must concede defeat. We raced up the wharf, for all the world like a swarm that has found the rotting carcass of an ass in a cabin's bed, making a beeline for the first tavern that met our eyes. 
and shouts over the threshold with a great yell of jubilation. But our joy was short-lived. The yell died on our lips. It was a ghost town. There was nothing here but a layer of dust covering the benches and tables. We broke into the next tavern, and the next, and the next. Everywhere the same sight met our eyes. The wine barrels had burst, and the long-desired drink moldered black as blood among the broken staves. Oh, the disappointment. We turned on our heel and trudged back to the ship with a grieved complaint. When Jason, son of Eson, saw his sailors returning to the quay, so woebegone, he grew thoughtful. And on hearing that the dock area had succumbed to moths and rust, he ordered us to prepare without delay for battle with the monster that had evidently destroyed all human life on the island. He sent Felerus, skilled in feats of arms, into the city to spy it out, and with him the huntress Atalanta, the only woman among our crew. They were well armed, as always, when there was the prospect of a hunt. These two had not gone far before they returned to the ship, leading between them a golden-haired maid, a golden-haired maid child that a group of terrified women had sent out to meet them. In her lily-white hand, the girl held a, a papyrus scroll. The troop of armor-clad heroes stood aside, opening a path for the small maiden to the gangway where Jason greeted her. She handed him the scroll that the son of Aeson unrolled and read with interest. The rest of us waited. Soon we would know whether a plague or a monster was responsible for the sinister state of this land. And meanwhile, the stout midshipman, Heracles, set the child on his knee and performed tricks for her amusement. A manly smile played over the lips of Jason, son of Aeson. Looking boldly to shore, he raised the papyrus scroll to the skies and shouted in triumph, my friends, we find ourselves on an island of women. Well, I, I hope you've enjoyed as much as I have our journey this afternoon through strange lands, indeed, in the company of these five wonderful writers. As usual, their books are on sale in Waterstones on the campus, so I'd encourage you all to pay a visit there to travel further in their company. Um, this evening, we'll be back here in the drama studio for the launch of Granta 119, a special issue on Britain, and so I look forward to seeing you all here then. But now, please join me in thanking Kathy Cole, John T. Driver, Samantha Harvey, Robin Hemley and Sean. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Writers' Centre Norwich. You can find out more about the organisation at writerscentrenorwich.org.uk and more podcasts like this one can be found on SoundCloud or iTunes.